standard issue for all women. Hello, I have managed to tear myself away from just sort of wandering around my house repeatedly muttering, Joe Johnson, I'll be. In order to welcome you, dear listener, to one of this week's two Sunday chops. That's right, it is another slap-up Sunday dinner at Shea Standard Issue. Perhaps you've already tucked into the second in our series on the menopause running throughout September, in which Hannah chats to Dr Anne Henderson about what is causing the HRT shortage, what women can do if they are affected, and what the rest of us can do to help. If you haven't heard it yet, please do give it a listen because Hannah learned something about how many doctors receive training in the menopause. Spoiler, it's not many. So please join us in being fucking livid. As for this episode, you are about to hear a cracking chat that Hannah and I had with the magnificent woman that is Carrie Gracie. Frankly, it pretty much took all of my energy not to just lay at her feet and name her my queen. Uh, But, you know, consummate professional in it. You can't blame me, though. Carrie is fierce, courageous, and she kicked the BBC's arse over its gender pay gap. We talk exactly what happened when she grabbed Auntie by the balls, unconscious gender bias, the motherhood penalty, why so many people still don't think the gender pay gap even exists, why men need to step up, and the importance of finding a sisterhood. As part of the chops, Carrie mentions that her donation to the Fawcett Society led to its Equal Pay Advice Service in partnership with Yes Law, Y-E-S-S, law which helps women wanting to fight for equal pay for further details on this give www.46society.org.uk a visit uh and obviously it goes without saying that you should get a book which is called equal a story of women men and money because it is a must read and it is out now hannah hello and i are joined by bbc news journalist and author of new book equal a story of women men and money carrie gracie hey carrie hello Thanks very much for coming in. Very exciting. I guess it's almost part of your job description, and it's certainly your Twitter bio, to add ex-BBC China editor. <laughs> uh, I think that's just because I haven't got around to changing it. Actually, I think I have got around to changing it now. I checked this morning. Did you? I Is did. Is it still saying Ex- ex-BBC China? Yeah. Oh, I might change it now. <laughs> but let's start by recapping how Equal clearly started. Could you tell us how it all kicked off with the BBC? So it really kicked off in 2017 because the BBC was forced to make some pay disclosures. And these were pay disclosures that for the first time allowed individual women to compare their pay with men doing the same jobs, which is obviously very unusual because we live in a society where a lot of pay is secret Mm -hmm. and a lot of women can't possibly compare their pay with the man at the next desk doing the same job because it's never discussed. And I think we're still in a society which sees talking about money as a bit uncouth. Well, uncouth and, yeah, and just somehow terrifying and, you know, I mean, it makes us very awkward, doesn't it? I mean, uh, there are stats that say we're far more happy to talk about our sexual partners, our (laughs) sexually transmitted diseases, whatever, than we are to talk about our pay, um, which is unfortunate because that's how women lose out. And so going back to my kind of beginning of my story, in July 2017, the BBC was forced to publish some figures about everyone was earning salaries over 150000 And I was two days into or three days into a holiday, and I didn't really want to think about it. But someone kind of, a friend of mine said, have you looked at these figures? The friend that I was staying with, she said, you know, what are all these men doing on this list who do the same job as you? And they're way above your pay. I thought mm-hmm. you asked for equal pay when you went to China. I'm thinking... Yes, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. Um, So on that day, I learned that, you know, some of the men that I uh, ostensibly did the same or similar work as were earning nearly twice as much as me. (sighs) 
I mean, I know that, but yeah, it still elicits a gasp. It's ridiculous. Well, the other aspect of it is I literally had gone in and said, I will not do your China job for you because they were desperate for me to do it because they really didn't have another obvious candidate and they wanted it done. I said, equal pay is one of the key conditions for me. I had three conditions for doing the job and equal pay was one of them because a lot of women at the BBC had suspected that this kind of thing was going on, Mm -hmm. but we didn't have hard facts and it's uncomfortable to challenge it. You know, you'd rather talk about the journalism. It's not polite to talk about money, as we were just saying. So on that day, we all kind of grew up in one fell swoop. How hard was the decision to pursue what you knew was rightfully yours? Uh, it, It was hard, it wasn't hard at the beginning. It got mm, harder. Yeah, um, it was a really drawn out yeah. process. So that all started in July 2017 and a lot of us grouped together. We wrote letters to our director general. I have to say I did not draft or send the letter. I just I signed my name because I was kind of like resolutely going in the other direction to the Outer Hebrides onto my, you know, I just really wanted my holiday. And all this stuff at the BBC is like the BBC is one never ending cycle of um of dramas of one kind and another and, <laughs> uh, you know, crises that management make worse. So I didn't want to let it disrupt my holiday. So so I'm not going to name the people who did get the letter together. But anyway, I signed it. We wrote to the director general, said, sort this out. You know, we as senior women at the BBC want to stand up for all women at the BBC and say, this is not acceptable. So that's how it started. But then it went on. And you know, I first, I think in the early weeks, I really thought we'd sort it out by talking reasonably. Yeah. Um, Mm. And so did many others. We thought we'd make the case, explain why it was important, show how we were doing the same work, remind managers of the facts of the situation and that that, uh, they'd go, oh, yes, you're absolutely right. You are doing equal work. Why don't you have equal pay? And then that didn't happen. And we ended up in kind of a grueling war of attrition in a trench, each of us siloed in our own trench because... The way these things work is by an informal pay complaint, followed by a grievance, followed by appeal against agreements, and an employer will isolate each woman as far as possible. That's certainly my experience and the experience of a lot of women as far as I can tell. Did it end up feeling like you were carrying the torch for it, though? Because your story was very much the one splashed across the newspapers. Well, so what happened was that... Um, in December 2017, we were beginning to work out that reason wasn't going to do it for us, that making a sensible argument, just like making a sensible argument in 1866, didn't get, (laughs) you know, didn't actually get women the vote that it took till, you know, uh, it took 50 years and and the First World War and the, you know, sacrifice of the suffragettes and all the rest of it before any women got the vote. So making a reasoned argument is one of those things that's not not going to get you to win where power and money and status are in play and their vested interests just being reasonable sweetly is not going to do it so by Christmas 2017 we'd kind of worked that out and there was a question was what we we're going to do next and I personally felt that as somebody in my mid-50s there were various factors anyway and we may or may not want to go into them all but there were various factors that made me not want to put up with it and also be prepared to go up over the top, as I put it, you know, that that kind of resignation of my post, the open protest letter, the calling the BBC's pay culture secretive and illegal in the pages of the Times. I was prepared to do that. So, yes, that was a kind of standard bearing thing to do. How did you get to that? You just said there were factors that 
we might not go into, but I'm intrigued. How did you get to that? Why were you feeling like you were in that position? Because it is hard when you're a woman and you've been isolated from other women who, as a group, like the suffragettes, you can get shit done. But when you're on your own, it's so much harder to wear that mantle. Mm. So I wasn't on my own. I think we were all in it together. But I was prepared to stand up and be named mm-hmm. and and kind and and make a sacrifice for it. And I think the reasons for that were quite subtle in a way. So 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 for example, that one key thing was that I had been out in China on and off for the BBC for 30 years and I had been being China editor, which was a highly exposed job in China because I was saying some things that, you know, China is not getting any easier to work in for journalists. It's getting tougher and and more censoring and controlling of journalism all the time. And so I had been battling with the censorship machine of Xi Jinping in China. And I had been doing that on behalf of values I believed in, which were those BBC values of truth, trust, accuracy, fairness, and so on. So it's like being a soldier on a distant front line and you come back and, you know, the Roman Empire is all chaos when you get home and all kinds of craziness is going down, which defies the values that you were fighting out there for. And also having fought out there on and off for 30 years to uphold those values and knowing many fine journalists who risk their lives, risk their liberty to fight for those values... I was not prepared to see those values trashed in head office. So you are going to tell the truth. You are going to be fair. You are going to be transparent. And you are going to make a proper notes of a grievance hearing. I mean, it's some people find it funny. But for me, it's like obvious that the kind of snap. The one breaking point for me was when I went to my grievance and I wasn't allowed to make an audio recording, which was very strange to me because, you know, we are the BBC. Yeah. Audio <laughs> recordings are our daily bread and butter. And then I was told, well, that's not BBC policy. And then we have a note taker. And I was a little bit uneasy about that because I had heard that official notes weren't that great. And when I saw the notes, kind of for several days, the notes were being what the BBC described as being finalised, which is a euphemism for all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And so when I saw the notes, I was, what? You know, that is not what BBC journalists do. A BBC journalist would not have, you know, their career would not have prospered worse. They might have being sacked for producing notes of that quality. They were full of omissions and errors and and they were gibberish. And I like to think that producing words that are coherent, carry a point, is my business. That's my job. I mean, you're doing very well today. <laughs> <laughs> oh, thank you. So, um, so that was, to me, a betrayal of my values. It was like the first time I'd ever had a complaint against my employer. I've been there 30 years. I'd worked hard to to make my reporting watertight in these accuracy, you know, areas and and not vulnerable to attack by the BBC's enemies. So to have the first ever complaint that I had against my employer, go to my grievance hearing and then have my voice returned to me as gibberish, well, that was not acceptable. It does sound very W1A, doesn't it? Well, you say that, but actually it is commonplace because the next thing that happened when I wrote that protest letter was hundreds of women started writing to me and it, it, this experience is, is so commonplace. And a lot of employers are doing exactly this. Well, that leads very neatly to me asking you, at what point did you decide, hang on, there's a book in this? Well, that was much later because I then, even after the protest letter and the parliamentary hearing and the you know regulator getting involved and all the rest of it, I was still 
slogging on with my internal complaint because that's what you have to do if you're going to bring an equal pay complaint and you're going to fight an equal pay case. So I was slogging on through the internal complaint system for another nearly six months. And it was only in June 2018 that the BBC still didn't find me equal. And I had a choice of what I was going to do. And I put it simply in my in my terms as I was going to lie down, leave or litigate. Those were my three options. And lying down is just going, OK, you win. I'll go back to work, be a good soldier. And leaving is obviously, I was if I was going to do that, I was going to do it loudly and slam the door on departure. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Or I was going to litigate. But that was a really terrifying prospect because... I knew by then, I talked to a lot of women who had tried to pursue their equal pay cases. It's just a horrendous road, so hard for women to pursue that. You know, they they risk their livelihood, they risk their career, they risk their financial security because it costs so much to go to court. They risk their mental health. I cannot tell you the number of women who have described awful mental health problems that they've suffered as a result of taking these workplace fights with their bosses, you know, who have not been prepared to give in and lie down. Anyway, so I was getting to this point where the BBC came back. It was the end of the road. I'd gone through the informal complaint, through the grievance, through the appeal against the grievance. It was nearly a year of fighting that, my own personal case. They came back and they, they're at the end of the road is when they give you your appeal outcome and they say, this is the end of your road. You have no further recourse here. And so I had a choice of whether to litigate or not. And I thought at that time... I can't do it. I just, I, I'm just not strong enough to do this. This is just going to crush me um, because I'll be. It's not that. It's not that the BBC itself will destroy me because I'll be so angry that I will take this to court and I will win and I will fight them every day on the way to court and I will win that battle in the you know court public opinion every day mm-hmm. because it matters to me. But I will be so angry that I will crush myself inwardly yeah. at the same time as I'm doing that. So that was what I was worried about. And I thought, well, the other thing I could do is if I leave, I could write a book to alert all other women to the danger and the need to be vigilant because there is no cure to unequal pay at the moment because the law is so unfit for purpose and the battlefield is so unequal between women and their employers. So if there's no cure, the only thing that women can do is protect themselves by prevention. They have to prevent the unequal pay from happening to them in the first place as far as they possibly can. So that degree of vigilance is what is required from all women now, I feel. So I was thinking, well, I could I could write that book. I could leave, slam the door, write that book, say, listen up, we all need to be vigilant. And then what happened was I was going to leave and do that thing and write the book. Then the other BBC women said, you can't leave. Are you mad? <laughs> what, less, what message does that send to everybody else? Because I was kind of in terms of the process, I was out ahead of the process. There were other people with informal complaints and grievances but it was like you're going up a mountain and you're near you're you know at the top of the line and there are other and so it, it looked it would look to everybody else that I'd reached the top of the mountain and jumped off the cliff yeah. um, if I left and to me it felt like just getting out and breathing fresh air again and a kind of victory but to other people within our movement our sisterhood it didn't look like that it just looked like the wrong message to send and I could Uh, In my truest self, also see what they meant. I could see that I would find it very hard to answer to Emily Pankhurst or Oprah Winfrey (laughs) or any of these women. You know, what were you doing? You're a privileged woman with a voice and a public profile and you, you would not take on the fight. 
seriously, Carrie, is that good enough? And I knew, and I knew that that voice would be would be bugging me in the back of my head if I left. So, so basically, I thought, okay, I have no other choice. I have to win now. So I went to see the director general of the BBC, and I said, well, first I wrote to him and I said, I'm going to fight you in court. And I'm going to win. And I said, "What? just what I said to you. I said, not only am I going to win in court, which is going to be the 50th anniversary of the Equal Pay Act, and you are going to be the test case to mark that anniversary. How happy are you about that? <laughs> but I'm going to beat you every day until then as well. And so I think he thought I was mad and bad enough to do it and that it would be uncomfortable. And therefore, you know, to cut a long story short, they settled. And as I see it, they surrendered. And I got pay parity... And I got an apology and there was a public statement between me and the director general in which they apologised. And then I gave the money away to the Fawcett Society to help low paid women with their equal pay advice from lawyers. So all of that happened. But anyway, I'd kind of already had the idea for a book. I still felt I still had this. I, I describe it as survivor guilt. I think that part of the reason I won my case was because I was mad and bad and determined. But it was also because I had two enormous privileges, one being I had a public voice because of my role. Yeah. And two being, I had this amazing group of very fierce women behind me and we were watertight in terms of support. And a lot of women fighting for equal pay or a lot of women who face unequal pay don't have that. And I found the fight almost overwhelming at times and I just cannot imagine what it is like for women who have to fight it on their own. You say having a public profile was useful for you, but there must have been a downside of that as well, because even the people that hate the BBC, which literally appears to be everybody most of the time, don't like the idea of women getting their way. Did you experience quite a lot of backlash? Yes, and I talk about it in the book. But, you know... Today, when I was coming here, I read a tweet by Greta Thunberg, and it was about, you know, if people are having a go at your looks or your difference, Mm. you know, you know you've won the argument. I mean, how low is it to just kind of, you know, people call BBC women, let me think of the the names we were called, um, you know. Well, you can't swear. All kinds of hideous things. Um, You know, I was called, I was called. Oh, we could we could find the page where I kind of listed all the horrible things, but it's like it's exactly the language that was used of the suffragettes and the suffragists back in you know a century ago. It's like, do these people have no self awareness? Um, no, they don't. <laughs> they literally don't. <laughs> it's a really easy. So I, 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 what was lucky for me was that I had, as I say, a group of very supportive colleagues, and I also had, you know, we reached out to other people to help us and. Everybody just kept going to me, just don't respond, just don't waste your energy on it. And it was a constant refrain from people who were in a position to be calmer at that particular moment than me, just going, just leave it, Carrie, it's not worth it. And so I did. But it really infuriated me, I have to say, some of the time. I mean, I'm glad I didn't respond because it's beneath me. But there were times when, you know, I do care about good journalism. So to see some of the nonsense that claimed to be journalism about yeah. my case and the BBC case, people who had no idea what they were talking about just spouting off the top of their heads. I just felt like phoning them up and saying, call yourself a journalist. Why don't you just phone me up and ask me a question and I'll give you an accurate answer yeah. and then you can print the truth. Hey, 
Hey there, you lot. If you're wondering how you can join in on the fun of a live Standard Issue podcast, well, you're in luck because I'm here to tell you our next live show will be at King's Place in London as part of the London Podcast Festival. And we are absolutely chuffed to bits because we will be joined by comedian and disability rights activist Tanya Lee Davis, as well as journalist and co-author of the brilliant Slay in Your Lane, Yomiya Degaki. And that will be on September the 15th. You can find out more information on this and how to get tickets by visiting visiting our website www.standardissuepodcast.com please do get a ticket it's my birthday and i will as the song goes cry if i want to technically it was a party not a birthday but same difference right equal pay is this easy go-to for why feminism still needs to exist we're not there yet but so many people refuse to see it as a thing oh equal pay is a thing now why why is this still happening mm. well it's very complex so i i've done a lot of research in in the context of writing the book on exactly that question. Why do we still have this problem? Mm. And I think if I boil the answer down to the simplest answer, partly it's because we are human beings with thousands of years of unconscious bias on gender. Yeah. And if we think we don't have gender bias, we are likely to be causing more problems than the people who acknowledge their gender bias. A lot of employers go, oh, no, gender bias is not a problem for us. And they are often the worst offenders. And this is proven in the academic research. The employers who say, we don't have a problem with gender bias. Gender bias is no longer a problem in the workplace in the 21st century. Those you will find are the people who are the most likely when faced with actual practical decisions. For example, they get a performance evaluation for two employees, exactly the same CVs, exactly the same experience. One is a male name, one is a female name. And they will say the male name deserves more pay. The male name deserves to be promoted. The male name will be given more management opportunities, more trips, etc. And yet they're the people who are saying that there is no gender bias in our society and they've just contradicted themselves. Um, so that's one thing. And the other thing is the motherhood penalty. Yeah. Mm. So those two things together are, I think, at the root of why the problem exists. And the motherhood penalty, as I see it, is obviously uh, very nuanced and complex and partly historical and partly biological women bear children, etc. Um, but I think it would be great um, if men were allowed the same shared parental leave and shared parental leave pay as women because I think it would enable them to make choices on a level playing field. And we talk about level playing field for women at work and we need to be equally fair to women, to men in the context of parenting. And that is part of the... 21st century challenge I, th I I personally think I wholeheartedly agree with mm. you it's so hard though isn't it because that's where that sometimes unconscious bias kicks in I was chatting to a friend who works in HR and she looks after she's quite high up and she looks after one of the big banks and she was saying they've got a really good paternity leave package that's what they do they're really proud of it about 85% of the men don't take it so what's really – Aviva are an interesting company in this respect because they very recently started to offer their men equal parental leave rights and equal parental leave pay rights. So they were getting paid leave for six months just like women were. Mm -hmm. And what they found was enormous uptake as soon as they did that. It's the pay that matters. Yeah. Um, because a right is not meaningful unless you can afford it. And that is why – the equal pay law is not meaningful for women because they can't afford to exercise their right to equal pay because they can't afford to use the law. 
And that is why on the other side of the playing field, men can't afford or feel they can't afford to often to use their right to parental leave because they don't have the pay rights accompanying them. Yeah, accompanying that. And then going back to why it still exists. So that's these are the kind of big drivers of the problem, I think, unconscious gender bias and motherhood penalty and these structural issues around it. But the reason why we don't get it, no, why it's so hard for women to fix is partly pay secrecy, so women can't see the problem. You can be paid less than the bloke doing the same job as you for your entire career and be ignorant of the fact and go to the grave, go to your grave. And it's like, if I hadn't suddenly, you know, been punched in the back by reality on the 19th of July 2017 I'd have probably gone to my grave ignorant that I was being paid not much more than half the guy who I thought was being paid about the same as me so we often just don't know we just don't know that there is a pay disparity and therefore we're not in a position to judge whether the pay disparity is justified or not because we don't even know it exists and then um, so once you even if you suddenly discover the pay disparity, the law is currently an asymmetric battlefield in favour of the employer. They have all the cards in their hand. They have all the pay data. You have none. So you don't know what the other people doing the same job earn. And that's really important because it's not enough to know just what one woman and one man um, get paid. Mm -hmm. Because what your employer may then do is say, well, he has this more experience or you're in development or this kind of language, they'll find a kind of apples and oranges explanation which explains the difference in your pay. Unless you have all the other pay data for all the other men and all the other women, you don't know how those same things are being valued for other people. And until you know that, you don't know whether any coherent explanation or structure is in play at all, or whether it's just apples are worth this when they're male apples, oranges (laughs) are worth this when they're male oranges... And, you know, if it's female oranges or apples, that's worth much less. I used to run a subs desk oh. and I used to chief sub and there were backbench male subs who earned more than I did for being a chief sub. See, which it's just, just the way your oranges fell. It's insane, it but it doesn't surprise me. This is this is why I wanted to write the book. It's survival yeah. guilt. I, I survived a traumatic experience and I won. And I won for these reasons of privilege that I'm describing a lot of women they are not going to they are not going to win and it just makes me so angry that all of this is still going on well uh, the the argument that I was presented with was that they had more experience than me but the argument I presented back was I had a wider skill set than they did and more responsibility Um, it didn't end particularly well I have to say because I had nobody I had nobody else that there were no other sort of female chief subs in the room at the time it's well so this is a really interesting point because I have a lot of advice for women in my book and it's written partly to women but it's also very much written to men and employers this is not a this is not a game where men can sit out and pretend it doesn't affect them it does affect them and those men if they were people who for whom fairness mattered they should have stepped in Mm. um and I that's what I'm saying to men in, in in my book it's time to step up and if you care about fairness, you should be in this fight. And the male comparator in an equal pay case is a crucial is a crucial player. Because if the male person that you're comparing to yourself to 
and I discuss a few cases which are which are really interesting where men have stepped up. If the man steps up and says, actually, she's doing the same job as me or her work is equal to mine, then it takes the woman from like this snakes and ladders board. It takes her from square nine to square 90, like up a ladder, just like that. It's very hard for the employer at that point to turn around and say, well, actually, your work is worth kind of that yeah. much less than him. Yeah. If he's sitting alongside you in your pay meeting saying, no, 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 her work is worth the same as yeah. me. And that's that's what we need men to do. Because the difficulty is in that situation, whether you then get in cost of pay increases, is that they're actually getting further away from you. Yes. <laughs> in that sense, you are never going to catch up with them. You are never going to catch up. And also, you're never even going to get promoted because if they're if they're getting paid more, then that says within the machinery of the organization that they're more valuable. Yep. And yeah. then uh, at a point where there is a promotion, they're going to tend to get it because the employer has to justify their higher pay. So, you know, these things are cumulative and self-reinforcing. And it's not just a matter of the kind of cumulative impact on your working life and your, you know, your income from your working life. It's also your entire pension um, is going to last for the rest of your um, natural life. And it's going to affect the opportunities you get in your career. And also how you feel about yourself. If you're constantly being told that you're not valued in the same way, then that goes in. It does go in, which is, again, why it's very important. And I talk at length about having a sister. There's a whole chapter called Sister Up because I think having other women who share that experience is amazingly empowering. And if I hadn't, if I hadn't gone through it, I would, I would find it hard to understand how, what a difference it makes. But it's exactly that because I think a lot of the women in our group, you know, they had suffered really serious damage to their self-esteem from being constantly put down. And obviously, also, if you fight for equal pay, you will be put down, you will be belittled, because the only way your employer can justify paying you less is that you are less valuable. So you are going to get the message that you're in development, that your work is somehow inferior, that your performance is inferior or has fallen off. You know, there's going to be a drumbeat of belittling that goes on. And so, the support and collective solidarity is is vital, and also it's, it helps because you know that the your your own messages of uh, low self esteem can come into play at that point, and it's easy for you to absorb an employer's message that your work is less valuable. But if they say, "Well, she's less valuable," you know they're talking rubbish. It's easier for you to see that they're talking rubbish about another woman than it is when they're talking about you. When they're talking about you, you think, oh, well, they're probably right. I I probably am a bit dodgy. But if they say it about someone that you know is an absolute force of nature as a journalist, you just think, nah, they're talking nonsense. And it's very interesting because that does create a kind of collective strength. So was part of Equal getting us more savvy at noticing the ways that women are knocked down and the ways that we can pull each other up? Yes, it is part of it. I mean, I wouldn't say I'm the expert on that. I mean, we all have our own experience of that. But definitely us working together was, for me, very interesting to observe what that kind of solidarity could achieve. I would not have done what I did without, without the solidarity of the group. No way. Because partly I wouldn't have seen the point. Partly it wouldn't have been possible, but partly also it wouldn't have been possible to achieve anything on my own. It was only possible to achieve something as a group because each and every one of us high-profile women at the BBC could have been picked off. She's just a spoiled princess. What is she on about? You know, she's 
so demanding. She's earning so much public money, and then she wants more public well, money. Well, that was yeah. definitely part of the rhetoric yeah. I remember reading. Yeah. yeah. Well, and not just the rhetoric externally. I mean, it's kind of like piped down through the air conditioning. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we definitely got, you know, we definitely got a lot of that. Can I ask a question about sort of about journalism on a wider scale? Um, the gig economy has very much arrived in journalism now. That's got to be exacerbating things, hasn't it? If you're only on a, a, a six-month contract, a three-month contract, you're not even going to know what other people are earning at that point, are you? No, so I agree. And I, I think, you know, I talk about that as in my kind of struggle to understand why this is happening and why uh, women are getting the rough end of the deal on this. I do think that globalisation, the gig economy, the deregulation under Thatcher, I mean, we go back step by step. But yes, all of this has helped undermine solidarity in the workplace. And like you say, it's very difficult for people to share information or feel any sense of empathy if they don't know the person that they're working with, if everything's atomised. Yeah. But I still feel lucky to be there in the first place, which is kind of, I think, when people I know who pick up, say, for example, a friend of mine just finished a six-month contract at The Times and felt lucky to have done it because it's so hard. She was one of about 400 people that applied for that job. So why would you rock the boat? Exactly. So there is definitely a lot of that. I mean, we we met that externally, we met that internally. I mean, with management saying you are so lucky, you people you don't know you've lived. <laughs> <laughs> and also, and also, you are lucky as women that we promoted you. Where is your oh. gratitude? Mm. Um, I know you can't swear, but what the actual <laughs> fuck? <laughs> yeah. Wowzers. So, but but I do think. I mean, to coming back to your point about the gig economy, I but I I think, and I hope people will find new ways of achieving solidarity because otherwise it's actually not good for anyone and it's not good for the workplace and it's not good for employers this kind of discrimination is not economically efficient i studied economics at university it's not just i also studied philosophy so it's not it's not just and it is not economically efficient it is just expedient in the short term which unfortunately is as far as quite a lot of management Mm. think It's that weird thing that happens in so many walks of our lives in that people go, oh, this needs to change. It's not fair. And they go, "Mm, it's just always it's the way it's always been done, though. Okay, well, could we do things differently? Because, well, we can see that's a good point, but this is always the way we've done it. And so it makes it very hard to initiate any sort of spark of change. If a woman was in a similar situation to you, what would be a couple of tips that you'd give her? Leave. <laughs> what would be one tip that you would give? <laughs> Seriously, I do think that you need to think about your value and you need to think about your contribution and you need to be fairly honest about it um, and you need to work out what you're contributing in your workplace that is of value and what your employer values. And you need to discuss that with your boss and you need to be having that conversation ideally on a fairly regular basis, not feeling inhibited about it. If you're not comfortable talking about money and that's where we started the conversation, you know, just have a, just just get a little bit outside your comfort zone. Start writing down the things that you do that you think add value. Even drop them in an email to your boss. Just start trying to have conversations about money and maybe start with your friends and family and then start with your colleagues. And the best place to start in terms of colleagues is possibly someone who's just left or is leaving so that they don't feel inhibited about telling you about their pay. 
and gradually move yourself into a slightly more assertive space in terms of thinking this is a natural, sensible thing to do, to think about the value that I contribute, how I can increase it, how I can discuss it, how I can um, get it properly valued. And if your employer is not taking that seriously, if your employer has a very large gender pay gap, if they don't have a sensible narrative for why that exists or how they intend to narrow it, if the winners in your workplace look exactly like the previous generation of winners and nothing like you, i.e. by gender or sexual orientation or socioeconomic class or whatever, then start asking yourself why you're there and whether they are the kind of workplace that might change and whether you better be moving if they're not going to change. Especially if you're young, I think, because you don't ideally want to leave it until you're, you know, until you feel less free to shift. And obviously, when you have kids or caring duties of one kind or another, it does become harder yeah. for people. And so if you're young and mobile in your career, you want to start really identifying whether your workplace is, is somewhere that shares your values. Equal is out on Thursday, the 5th of September. Where can people find out more about the book and about you, please, Carrie? I think they can find out more about the book on Virago's website or on my website. I've got a website which is carriegracie.com and Virago is virago.co.uk. And if I can make, do a plug for my China work, yeah, which yeah. that's where the conversation started with the value of that work, of which I was immensely proud because it was done in the teeth of so much opposition from the Chinese. Oh, and I forgot to mention that when we think about, um, you know, when we think about why I did do that going up over the top and, you know, bearing the torch, I told the Chinese foreign ministry when they said, what on earth were you doing? What was that about? And I said to them, it was you. You taught me defiance. And I just <laughs> operated it back home. But anyway, so looking at my China work, my China work, some of it, my favorite pieces anyway, are on my website. And that was where it started. I thought that work was of equal value. And I was not prepared for anyone to tell me less. Carrie, thank you so much for coming to talk to us. You You're made an me want inspiration. Made me want to kick the patriarchy in the balls, quite frankly. <laughs> I'm off to do that now. <laughs> Go for it. <laughs> Standard issue for all women.